Hey, before we begin, a quick reminder that today's episode is made possible in part by the Todd and Stephanie Schnick Foundation. Find us at schnickfoundation.org. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Let's go, y'all. You are listening to The Foundation Podcast. Our goals are to help you build the foundation to live your best life, help solve problems, better serve humanity, and to become a beacon to help inspire change. We connect you with today's leaders, affecting positive and impactful global change. And now, here are your hosts, Todd and Stephanie Schnick. Welcome back to the Foundation Podcast. I am your host, Todd Schnick. Uh, it's going to be a great conversation, a good friend of mine. This is a guy who I've interviewed now on various platforms, probably close to a half dozen times over the last decades. A good dude. One of the guys I really look up to is a, an important leader. And these are difficult, strange times as we record this conversation. We are deep in the throes of the COVID-19 quarantine. So a uh, really good time to connect with this guy and hear what he has to say. So let's get to it. We're joined this morning by Joshua Becker. He's an author, writer, and philanthropist. Joshua, my friend, welcome. A decade. Can you believe it? Unbelievable. Well, it wasn't long after you launched your minimalist blog, right? That we connected. Because that was what that was what generated that connect. So but it's yeah. been roughly a decade. That's amazing. Yeah. I've been writing for twelve years about minimalism and simplicity. And I pastored a bit before that, but I've been writing and speaking and starting nonprofits and doing all that for the past uh, decade. So it's been wonderful to get to connect with people like you. Well, that has been a, a great joy. Uh, when I got into minimalism, uh, it was you and the minimalists, Joshua and Ryan. The, you were the three trio, the triad, as I called it, that kind of brought me to the promised land on on living more simply. So grateful to your, your work over these 12 years. Or you mentioned uh, starting a nonprofit. And that's where I want to kick off our conversation today. Uh, not too long ago, you launched The Hope Effect. So what is it? How does it work? Who does it serve? Our goal is to change how the world cares for orphans. We work in developing nations, started back in late 2015. Man, it is fascinating. We have known for decades that traditional style orphanages are actually pretty harmful for kids. Yeah. It's something like 70 to 80% of children that grow up in a traditional orphanage end up incarcerated, homeless, in prostitution, or victims of suicide. Wow. And literally, we've known it for decades, but no one talks about it. And through a, a bit of a long story and some friends and some situations and started hearing about it and said, well, let's let's make a change. In in most developed nations, they've moved on to the foster care system, right? So kids who are orphaned grow up in a family, right. someone or another. But in developing nations where resources are less, it's more difficult. And so we work in Honduras, we work in Mexico, and bringing family-style care to orphans uh, around the world. Well, you touched on it, but go deeper on why orphans. I mean, you know, I, now that I've launched my own foundation and I'm paying attention to all the amazing charitable organizations and groups out there, there, there's a lot of causes that you could have wrapped your head around. Why orphans? Well, three reasons. Number one, my wife was adopted as a baby. And so uh, orphan care has always been uh, near and dear to our heart. Number two, when I wrote the book, The More of Less, which was all about 
owning less and owning fewer possessions and a whole bunch of publishers showed a lot of interest in paying for the book and publishing the book. I realized I was going to get offered a a good chunk of money to write a book about how buying things won't make you happy. <laughs> so, so we knew pretty early on that we were going to use all the proceeds from that book and the subsequent book, The, the Minimalist Home, to start a nonprofit in some way to, to bring about, to solve some problem in the world. And so it was a very close friend of mine who at that same time had been going through, had adopted a baby from South Korea and a 12-year-old from Thailand and just had night and day experiences with the two children. And that's what led him to discovering all this research about traditional orphanages and just how brains don't develop correctly in that environment. And so around the same time, we were looking for a problem to solve. He was going through his experiences and sharing it, and it just seemed to seem to come together perfectly as something that we could play a role in because of his connections. We knew some ways to get started. And then the third reason, Todd, just very strategically, I had been writing and about minimalism and had grown a pretty sizable community of people who followed me over there. And I knew that I, I wanted to use that community to help to bring them along in this issue. And so there was a, a part of me that said, okay, what is something that I could get broad support for? Like, I didn't want there's a lot of problems that people can solve and they're all important and all different passions are good. But if there was anything that I could take all these people from all these different backgrounds and say, hey, we're going to work together to do this, taking care of orphan children was certainly one that I knew I could get a large percentage of people who knew me from something else to want to be involved with. That's great stuff, Joshua. So what do you do differently? You talk about the traditional way that orphans were brought up didn't work. What, what are you doing differently? We work in, we're in two different cities in Honduras, and we are in three different cities in Mexico. Currently, cities who only have the orphanage system, right? Four walls and workers that come and go and pretty unfortunate child to parent ratios. And so we go in and we go into the city and we look for families that would take orphan children in. And then we we have a pretty long approval process that they need to go through. We give them all the, the training that they would need. And then we begin placing children in those families where they will grow up as opposed to as opposed to growing up in the orphanage. That's great stuff. And what kind of results are you getting? Well, we've been doing it for several years. We just formed one of the, the first. Well, it's very interesting. The, the laws, the laws are different in every country and in even every state. And so we, uh, we just formed a partnership with the state of Sonora in Mexico, which is the second largest state in Mexico. And uh, we are the first nonprofit to form a partnership with the government to both recruit families and train them and follow up on kids. So we're, we're one of the first public-private partnerships in the state. And then we've, there's some other organizations in Honduras that have been doing this pretty well. And so we've been able to partner with them and provide resources so that they can expand their reach and expand the number of children that they're able to place in families. Yeah, that's great stuff. Well, congratulations on that. It will be exciting to see how this continues to evolve. While we are on the subject of the Hope Effect, should anyone listening want to learn more about it or more importantly, financially support it, how do they do that? Yeah, hopeeffect.com. All right. So my natural next question is why? 
Why are you taking the time, probably spending personal cash to help make this thing happen? You and your wife had settled into a comfortable life. You are a successful author. You have, as you said, built a nice community. You didn't need to do this. Why did someone like Joshua Becker have to do this? Well, that is a good question. I've lived long enough to know that there are probably both pure and impure motivations for everything that we do. (laughs) Uh, The impure ones are are tougher to understand and and even tougher to to recognize. From what I I believe was my motivation and, and what I want to do it is literally, I have become convinced that the most fulfilling thing that I can do with my money is give it away and use it to help others. I lived 30 some years of my life buying the stuff and upgrading the home and expanding the closet and filling my house with stuff. I had lived that way and I found minimalism, I found simplicity, I found owning less, and I began freeing up my money and time and energy from taking care of things that I don't need and beginning to pursue those things in life that I was most passionate about. And along the way, I found that I had capacity, I had opportunity, I had margin to be giving money away and to be helping others. And the more I did that, the more I, even the more contentment I found with my life, like the more joyful I became and the more fulfilled I felt at the end of the day and at the end of the month, knowing that I was helping people and I was solving problems. And so that personally, as opposed to the, well, number one, you have just the the need out there right. and, and we can change people's lives and our money is only as valuable as what we choose to spend it on. And so we can like, we can change the direction of the world in significant ways. But on a personal level, I found that I'm, I'm more joyful giving my money away than I am spending it on a larger screen television. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I love it. And my wife and I, in launching our foundation, have, are going through a similar journey. And, and you know that I have been an advocate for minimalism and simple living for a long time as well. I mean, and that's where I want to come back to you. Uh, when we chatted roughly a year ago, uh, when we were interviewing you about your latest book, The Minimalist Home, we got into what I thought was the really powerful part of that discussion in that the whole, there's there has to be reason why you go through this process, why you adopt the principles of minimalism. And it was in a context that I really hadn't thought of it before. And, and you were, in essence, were saying, and by doing so, by having a, a simpler, cleaner home and then living by these principles of simpler living, it frees up space, both physical and more importantly, mental, that then positions and, and empowers you to then focus on things like launching the hope effect or serving mankind in some way, shape, or form. And that is... Because my journey in minimalism was, all right, I got too much crap. And so I want to start cleaning up that. And so cleaning up the physical space obviously had powerful benefits. But it really dawned on me that the real power of this was cleaning up the mental crap. (laughs) Because once you do that, then you can put your eye on the things that do matter to you. And it might be launching a nonprofit. I mean, so talk more about that. I guess you should also do the quick Joshua Becker 30 seconds on what minimalism is for those listening that haven't heard you talk on that, but then move into how doing so frees you up to actually do things like serving mankind. Yeah, maybe I'll actually answer the the second part first. Good. You know, when you think about it, you, you can either live life for yourself or you can live life for others. 
And I would have never said out loud that for the first three and a half decades of my life, I was living just for myself. Like, I don't think anyone wants to say that they're selfish. And very few people would say, yeah, I'm a really selfish person. But when I started to look at how much time and how much money and energy I was spent on just chasing things for myself, I really was living a pretty selfish lifestyle. And so when I found minimalism and started realizing how much money and time and energy I had wasted, not just on accumulating things for myself, but on even desiring more and more and more things, like there was no end to always wanting to to get more and accumulate more. And I, I started to realize, gosh, I'm I'm living far more for myself than I ever thought that I was. And so that process of intentionally owning fewer possessions started to show me how much time and money and energy and mental capacity, as you say, that I actually do have in my life that I could start directing towards others, other people, whether it be the, my next door neighbor or whether it be an orphan child around the world. So selfish versus selfless living is we can really only do those are the only two options. And um, I discovered that I was living far more selfishly than than I thought. The quick story of discovering minimalism was, yeah, the 30 second version, uh, a Saturday morning, clean out my garage. My son was five and he was playing alone in the backyard. And I spent all morning long cleaning out my garage. And at some point in the day, I just looked at how much time I had spent sorting out my stuff while my while the most important thing in my life sat alone in the backyard and suddenly realized that all the physical possessions that we have, that they weren't making me happy, but even worse than that, they were actually taking me away from the very things that, that did bring happiness in my life and fulfillment and, and meaning and significance. And so owning fewer possessions was about being able to direct my life towards things that actually matter in the long run, which I think is where we always run into selfless living when we start thinking about those things that are actually going to matter. Well, one of the things we talked about when we last chatted on the last book was, and I can vouch for this, uh, how many homes I've been in where the kitchen table was so full of stuff you couldn't use it to actually eat at. And so the mere thought of having a, a uncluttered dining room table where family and humans could actually get together and break bread and spend time together and enjoy each other's company how powerful is that one act alone, you know, and just to be able to facilitate and empower people to sit together and spend time talking. I mean, I mean, that's that one example illustrates the power of more simple lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. I was uh, talking to someone else um, one time and he had cleaned out the living room like there. He had a couple of young kids and their their living room had, I don't know, just full of stuff. And he said, we started getting rid of the things that we didn't need. And then we started asking questions about like, what do we want this room really to be? And what do we want this room to accomplish? And he said, we took out the television from our living room and we brought in some instruments and we brought in books because that is what I want my kids to focus on, the arts and literature and not watching television. But just that that process of getting rid of things that they didn't need and becoming more intentional about their possessions and their spaces can't help but I think, force us to ask deeper questions about the lives that we're living and are we living them to the fullest and are we living the most purposeful life that we can or are we missing out on a lot of opportunity by unintentionally wasting it? 
Well, and on that subject, as we record this, I am 50 years old and, and I came to this minimalist journey when I was just turning 40. And I never in those pre-minimalist days when my life was at, at a real, real confusing, cluttered, uncertain, confused point, never in, in a million years would I have had the mind space to think about and launch a family foundation, you know? And so, so going through this journey, has ultimately led me to a place where my wife and I could sit down and actually do this. I mean, and, and that alone is a great end to my own journey. Now, my journey will continue, obviously, but launching this foundation was a result of that 10-year journey. And there's probably countless examples of, of things like that that you could probably share with us. But I imagine you came to a similar place, right? Yeah. I have a published a magazine called Simplify Magazine, and we're, uh, we're taking an Articles from um, we're doing a work and work and play issue coming up later this summer, and so reading through the articles, and I I just had one. We go out and find experts to to write different things, and a, a mentor of mine I had write about retirement. His name is Robert Thune, is the guy who's writing the article, and he focuses on this idea of first half and second half of life, and he says that the typical trajectory is that we're very gung-ho about work the first half of our lives and we uh, we have the energy and we have the focus and we have the drive and the motivation and we we pour all of our lives into the work that we're doing and then he says in most people's lives there comes the second half at some point and it seems to be you said 50 you know probably even a little bit before that right where where we start to maybe start shifting from chasing success to seeking significance and rather than chasing money we start chasing meaning and life right like it it starts to look a little bit different and as soon as he sent the article back i I wrote him back and i said thank you for that that thought you know it takes someone years down the road to be able to write something like that and notice something like that about life and certainly that moment i think where we we realize hey what am i chasing in life and what really am I pursuing happens to different people at at different times. And certainly I think you get a whole hierarchy of needs conversation. And if I'm just struggling to survive and provide shelter, then there's less opportunity to be asking questions of meaning and self-actualization and all those issues. But I think it's something that we should all wrestle with. And the sooner we we wrestle with it, the better. Well, I love the idea of seeking significance versus chasing happiness. I promise you, I will steal that. <laughs> that's a, that sums that, that discussion up uh, very, very nicely. So as I said at the top of the show, as we record this, we are all uh, sheltering in place <laughs> for COVID-19 and gosh knows how long we'll be doing this. You published a, a piece a handful of days ago as we record this, talking about the juxtaposition of minimalism and austerity dealing with COVID-19. I, I don't have a, a direct question, but talk about the issue. Is this a good time to think about minimalism? Is it a, it, it, I mean, we're now sitting at home in this cluttered place and maybe frustrated. We don't even realize why we're frustrated. It's because we don't have room at the dining room table to actually do anything with the family or play any card games. Just talk about this issue of minimalism combined with the strange times that we're in dealing with COVID-19. 
Yeah, I, I think probably the the important themes that I don't know if I communicated them well or not in the piece, but the the major themes I think that are important are number one, like any time is a good time to discover minimalism. Like any time we recognize that physical possessions aren't making us happy and might actually be distracting us from happiness is a good time to discover it. I don't want anyone to be forced into minimalism was an important point in that article. And so anytime is a good time to discover it, but it's people who are forced into it. I don't think the effects are quite long lasting. If we're if we're being forced into owning less because we lost a job or we had to take a 30% pay cut or whatever it might be, then typically as soon as the paycheck returns, we just go back to the way that we were living before. I would much prefer that people would voluntarily discover the joy of owning less and decide to choose it for their life. That being said, there are a lot of truths about the current circumstances that we're living in that I think lend people to discovering the benefits of owning less, even if it just means having to remain safe at home for an extended period of time. You can't help but maybe notice some of the things that you've cluttered and accumulated that you wouldn't have noticed if you were just living a, a busy, rushed life, rushing from one thing to another. I think that coming out of this pandemic and out of this crisis, there's certainly going to be a new normal going forward for everybody in the world. And so being intentional about re-entry when the crisis ends, which it will, we'll, we'll all get through this together. What does the new normal look like? And what am I intentionally adding back into my life? I was with a group of guys, there's about eight of us. And I, I said, hey, how many of you are in some way happy because something got canceled because of the shelter in place requirements? Not that anyone would want to lose work or anything that, but was there anything on your schedule that you're kind of glad you didn't actually have to go to? And every, everyone said, oh yeah, like there was, there's been several things I'm glad I didn't have to go to because of the change. And so I don't want to minimize any of the the negatives and the forced cancellations and the missed work. But okay, like let's just be intentional coming out of this about what am I going to spend my money on and where am I going to spend my time and uh, what that looks like going forward. Yeah. I saw a quote by Dave Hollis and I don't know who that is, but I saw this online and this is in the rush to return to normal. Use this time to consider which parts of normal are worth rushing back to. And I thought that was brilliant. I shared that quote on the uh, Becoming Minimalist Facebook page, and I think it's been shared half a million times, and it's reached over 15 million people by now. I had forgotten that you were the one that originally <laughs> shared that. I should have known. All right. Hey, let's shift perspective here a little bit, since I have the pleasure of talking with a fellow who's co-founded The Hope Effect. There is perhaps someone listening to this who is interested in doing something of impact like that. And my wife and I, we like to say that, you know, the, the, one of the reasons, one of the things that we're trying to inspire by having us founded our own foundation was to say, well, hey, if Todd and Stephanie can do this, I can do this. And so to speak to someone who's listening, who says, oh, yeah, I would love to do that, but it's, I don't have the time. I don't want to, it's too much work. It's talk to that person who, who, cause we need a lot of heroes right now and we need more people to step up and do this important work. So talk to that person who's struggling with getting 
the fire in the belly to actually create something of, of importance that will serve someone? Well, I think you have a, a, several different realities that are, are both true at the same time. And that is, number one, it's hard work, unless you would disagree, right? Like, like this is hard work, It's hard it? work. It's not, it, it's not difficult, but it's hard work. Yeah, yeah. It is. And it goes through a, it goes through this cycle, right? Where that at the beginning, you're really excited about it. There's a lot of things that you can do quickly to get started. And then it reaches this, this section of, okay, the excitement is worn off and now it's the details and it's the hard work of, of pushing through this. And then you kind of get on the back end of, okay, now I know what I'm doing and I know how to function. So anyway, so two different realities that are number one, it's hard work. But number two, if Todd can do it, you can do it. <laughs> if, yes. uh, if, Todd, if Todd can do it, if, if I can do it, like you can do it. There are people all over the world who are starting nonprofit organizations. And I didn't know what step number eight or step number nine was going to be, but I could figure out what step number one was and I could figure out what step number two was. And you just keep figuring out what the next steps are as you're going down the road. And you don't have to be an expert in starting nonprofits to get started doing it. You become an expert by actually doing it. And so I would say, number one, like make sure that the drive is there and make sure that the motivation is there and the, the capacity to do it is there. But if it is, then I think you take the first step and you get started. Now, I would add one more piece. And this was something that that we were told constantly, I was told constantly before I got started, and it is really good advice, and you probably heard the same thing, and you need to answer this question, is why are you starting something new and not just partnering with someone who's already doing what you want to be a part of? And so it is a good intermediate step for someone, like, okay, I don't have to start something new. If I strongly believe in someone who's already doing the work I want to be doing, I can just partner with them and I can help them. But we were asked that question for a year and wrestled with it over and over again and kept coming back to, I think the greatest good that I can do in the world is starting my own and doing it the way that I specifically want to do it. So I think people need to answer that question. They need to know that they can get started right away, even if they don't have to start a brand new nonprofit. But if they wrestle with that question and end up with, I think the best thing is I start my own, then you can do it. And just look at Todd and myself as an example of it's possible to do. Yeah. Well, one of the things that we do is we support family caregivers who are tending to perhaps a parent who has Alzheimer's or dementia or cancer. And we were working through trying to set up the process to actually do the direct person-to-person -person support and realized the, the utter complexity of that process and the legalities of it and then the IRS complications from that and suddenly realized there were hundreds, if not thousands of organizations already in, in existence that did that important work. And, and so our job as we see it now, maybe someday we'll, we'll be big enough where we can take on a, an actual project like that, that and manage it ourselves. But right now we're very content to shine a light on other people doing the, the important work and doing it well. And that's become one of our goals is to 
hey, shine a light on people who are doing amazing things. And and one of the ways we're doing that is this very podcast and, and bringing on folks such as yourself who, who've co-founded The Hope Effect and telling that story. And, and that's, that's, one of, that's one of the reasons why we are doing this very show is to shine that light. So great, great stuff. All right. Well, Joshua, as you know, uh, before we close, we do ask each guest to go through the Foundation Podcast lightning round. So four questions that we'll ask all of our guests. Are you ready to dive into that? I'm ready. All right. Like it is. So the first question is, what is the biggest challenge or the biggest problem that afflicts all of mankind, but is one that we could solve if we were committed to do it? Oh, so we're doing, oh, so these are easy questions. These are easy <laughs> questions. Yeah. Uh, the understanding of ourselves and what motivates us and what is healthy and what is unhealthy and the work that goes into that. It is possible to do it takes hard work to do, but the more we understand where our motivations are coming from, the more we're able to act out of pure ones going forward. Brilliant. I should have known you would have answered it that way. Uh, All right, question two, what is one thing people listening to this conversation can do right now to affect positive change in the world? Oh, help the person right next to you. I think it was uh, PJ O'Rourke who said, everybody wants to change the world, but nobody wants to help mom wash the dishes. <laughs> and um, it is very true. There are people living right next to you. There are people in your community that, that need your help. And you can do something, even if it's just helping out your spouse or you're helping your kids with their homework. All right. The next question, what is one thing or what is an issue that you want people to learn more about or take action on? And how do they do that? Is there a documentary you watch, a book to read, a mailing list they can join? Well, given the work that we're doing at the Hope Effect and some of the research that was shared with me just even recently that I didn't know about even, even into my 40s, I would encourage people to look into this idea of human development at a young age and the importance of interaction with family and moms and dads and how much that influences a person um, starting at a very young age. There's a, a great YouTube video. It's only a couple minutes long. It's called the Still Face Experiment, the Still Face Experiment. And it just shows a baby interacting with the, I forget if it's a, a boy or girl, interacting with the mom. And um, when she gets these nonverbal cues, and when they're existent and when they aren't existent. And number one, just because of it, it forms the basis for what we're doing at the Hope Effect, but it should also just form the basis for how we're raising children and interact with them in our own family. And so I would encourage people to find that video. Yeah, Still space experiment. Got it. And then the final question is, uh, what's a person that someone should pay attention to, whether they run a nonprofit or a change agent or a major influencer? Uh, who should we be paying more attention to? Oh, so many good people. You know, I learned a lot about nonprofits from Scott Harrison at Charity Water. We structured the Hope Effect the same way, where 100% of donations go directly to the, the work that we're doing as opposed to administrative costs. So I learned a lot from Scott Harrison at, at Charity Water. If I were to mention another organization, there's two nonprofits that really shaped us more than any other. Do it. Charity Water and the International Justice Mission. Those are the two that, that I learned the most from, and I would recommend anyone who's interested in nonprofit work to uh, check out both of their work. Wow. And, and 
I can vouch for Charity Water. Uh, one of my longtime clients is a is a trade magazine that covers the water, wastewater, stormwater space. And so obviously water has been an important part of my work. And I have done several campaigns through Charity Water. It's a great organization. Great, great idea. All right. Well, Joshua, thank you for going through the lightning round. Uh, we're about out of time. So one last piece of business before I let you go. It's probably an extensive list at this point, but share um, how people can connect with you through your blog, through any newsletters, or where do they find your books? And then again, one last time, share information about the Hope Effect. Well, becomingminimalist.com is the website, and it's my home home online. Everything I do runs through that. Obviously, there's there's two books out about minimalism, and we just launched an app a couple weeks ago oh, called yeah, Butterfree. It's the... Uh, First app on the market to create a customized, personalized decluttering roadmap for someone who's interested in owning less. Literally, you upload your home into the app and it tells you do this room first, do this room second, offers all the different steps. So I would send people there. And HopeEffect.com is uh, all the work that we're doing, changing how the world cares for orphans. So would send people there. But you can find them all. You can find all those links from BecomingMinimalist.com. Joshua Becker, author, writer, philanthropist, all around good dude. Joshua, again, I appreciate you making time to join me. Well, thank you so much. I look forward to another decade of hanging out with you. Me as well. All right. It's all the time we have for today. Thank you again for tuning in. I am your host, Tachnik. We'll see you next time on the Foundation Podcast. The Foundation Podcast is produced by Intrepid Media and is made possible in part by the Todd and Stephanie Schnick Foundation. Learn more by visiting schnickfoundation.org. And thank you for listening. Now, get out there and do some good, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>